In theory, if I talk, it should go up. And if I talk, it'll go up. Or in this down. case, it goes down. Um, I think we have it working, maybe. <laughs> Holy cow, this is incredible. So it took us 40 minutes to figure this out. Flying uh, just with the two of us, not the actual technical person, Andy, here. It feels at, funny. It does feel very funny. It's awkward because we're trying to figure out technical stuff that we don't know how to do. Um, but uh, right now you just have Tanner and Drew. Drew. And welcome to another episode of EM Over Easy. So without Andy, I thought the best topic to talk about, since Andy's now going to be an attending, um, is how to deal with Andy. Because that's a, a whole topic on its own, and we really shouldn't do that in his presence because it just would be awkward. Yeah. So the first things first is don't actually directly look him in the eye because he will get very angry and explode. And the first rule of Andy is you don't talk about Andy. Yes. If you address him, you address him directly as Dr. Little, and, uh, and then you try to shuffle sideways out of his direct path at any given moment. All right, in all seriousness, super pumped to have him as an attending. It's going to be a lot of fun, but let's talk about something real because if we're going to talk about Andy, we should do it in his presence, uh, not not like this. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, It's July. New interns floating around the hospital. Students are going to be starting auditioning with us uh, in a matter of days, and one of the things that uh, I think is fun to talk about this time of year every year is because our newly born second years are now going to start having students rotating with them is how to teach. Because uh, at least in our residency program, interns don't have students with them. They're not really teaching. They're just worrying about being interns, which is, I think, a great way of doing it. But now all of a sudden, you show up to a shift and you got this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed third or fourth year student. Maybe they're interested in emergency medicine. Maybe they're not showing up and saying, hey, Dr. Gronowski, I'm with you today. And um, it's going to be awesome. And you're thinking. The first thing I think is don't call me Dr. Gronowski. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but once we get past that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that's a very, very difficult uh, time frame. Uh, and I kind of like this, this, this play that we've kind of been doing, the, the middle years of residency, because I think they are often forgotten. Um, there's so much that goes on in the first year and the last year that these ones are, are very important. And so what I'm really curious about is uh, what your typical approach is going to be. And I, I know we kind of have similar approaches, but for me personally, my one goal is to make sure that I am not going to be the person who has just a shadow for a medical student. Right. I think having a shadow is the worst thing you can do. It's, hey, follow me into a room, watch what I'm doing, and not give them any autonomy. But before I figure out what I'm going to do with the, the student on a shift is I want to figure out who that student is. Um, are you here because you're interested in emergency medicine? Are you, do you have no interest in emergency medicine that's just a required rotation for you? And what do you want to get out of today? Um, so once I can figure that out, that kind of helps guide me as to how I'm going to deal with them. So the ideal student for me is a fourth-year auditioning uh, student who wants to do emergency medicine because then you can almost treat them like an intern minus the fact that they're putting orders in and doing notes and things like that. But those other students are important too because they're still moldable. Uh, they, third years might not know what they're doing yet, might be interested in emergency medicine, might be interested in something else. you got to figure out that too and how do you give them the experience they want. Or if it's someone who's interested in OB, you just hand them all the uh, pelvic pain, lower abdominal uh, female patients, and you never go into any of those rooms. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I, I usually lead off every new student that I have with that exact process. Intro, who am I, who are they, kind of try to figure out who, what their goals are, what their desires are, just because that is truly, I mean, if you're try to, trying to connect with somebody, try to get them to learn, knowing who they are a little bit is going to help go a long ways in making that a, a successful endeavor. So then once you've kind of established who they are, and this is somebody who you think is going to be a decent performer in the ED, we got to figure out where we're going from there. So what, what is the game that we like to play? And I think you and I both kind of approach it as it's a little bit of a game. There's kind of different games that you can play to teach students. And it, some of it depends on the way the shift is going to break up. If you're going to be on a shift that patients continue to come and it's a busy shift, you got to play a little bit different game than if you do if uh, maybe it's a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning and things aren't as busy or it's overnight and things slow down a little bit and you, you have time to actually do a little more hands-on teaching. But I'm big on students taking, getting some autonomy, taking responsibility for themselves, seeing a patient, assessing the patient, coming up with their differential diagnosis. And I think that's huge, is the differential diagnosis. And in emergency medicine, no matter whether it's a third year who really has no interest in emergency medicine or it's a fourth year auditioning to get a spot at our program, it's that differential diagnosis is probably the easiest game to play and probably one of the most beneficial for them. So I play the, the game, tell me the two things most likely it is, and then tell me at least the two things you have to make sure it's not, and then I want at least one zebra diagnosis. So it gets them to think out of the box, right? So in emergency medicine, we're all about ruling out the bad things. Like, what do I need to make sure it's not in order for you to go home? Or if it is, then I gotta get you to the right place. And so those are the things that you have to rule out. The two most common things are the most common things. But then it's that zebra is like the true curveball in the mix. And, and they, gotta, they gotta dig a little deeper, think a little harder, and come up with a, a little more of a broad differential. And, and that's the one that I have fun with because it forces me to think of zebras too that I'm not always thinking of. Um, or if they give me a zebra that I hadn't come up with, I have to think about, is that realistic or not? Why or why not? No. And then from there, you can go into, okay, that's great. What tests do we need to get to rule in, rule out, go through those things? And then you have a good conversation about testing also. I don't really care about, uh, from a medical student standpoint, can they write a good HPI? Because you know what? They can all write better HPIs than I can. The reality is they write HPIs that are way too long and way too detailed say, and irrelevant to medicine. I don't know if I agree medicine. with that statement. <laughs> better HPIs? Well, more involved, eloquent, detailed HPIs as opposed to... Or long, boring, I fell asleep after the fifth sentence right. and am no longer paying attention. 100%. Therefore, a bad HPI because I can't get what I need from it. No, nobody cares about the HPI anyway. It's all about your medical decision making. But that's a topic for another. Yeah, that, that is a different one. Um, I, I'm, I do a very similar thing. You know, I kind of establish. I have this protocol that I, I want each one to go through, which is here. You're going to go see a patient. That is now your patient. See them, evaluate them, come back out, and I actually have them type up an HPI. Right. And go through the same process. Differential after that, and my differentials. For the most part, the same. I, I don't do five. I do, you know, the, I, I always tell them worst things first. So think of the deadliest thing this could be, the thing that we can't miss. Tell them, it, a lot of times they get hung up on that little phrase because they're like, well, this is obviously not any of those. It's like, no, you've got to have to at least think about them. And then the second one is going to be most likely, and then the third is a zebra, something weird, crazy, which they all struggle with that. Sure. Which I don't understand because... As a medical student, you have been exposed to a bazillion diseases that you're never going to see in your entire life. You guys should be the best at it, and yet they all struggle with it. Yeah, the, the medical student zebra database is far greater than my zebra I know. database. It's crazy. The, the issue that I typically have is 
Sorry, I get distracted by the little wavy lines because I'm trying to see if we're recording correctly, and it looks like we are. I don't think there's going to be too much echo. Anyways, so the the thing that always, like, do you have a pocket zebra that you just always can jump on for a lot of the common complaints that you see? A lot of common complaints. Uh, you know, a lot of zebras, for especially for the, well, I think most medical students, is you, there's always malignancy. Like, people don't think about malignancy as yeah. a zebra. And I don't want to say it's necessarily a zebra, but that's the, that's the differential that they don't throw out there, you know. Uh, you have a, a young female with low abdominal pain, and we've gone through the ectopic pregnancy and the ovarian torsion, and this could just be benign abdominal pain and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you got to throw out there the, is this a, a, some type of OBGYN, you know, a GYN sure, cancer sure. situation, something like that. Or um, the chest pain with shortness of breath in an older person who's a smoker, um, SVC. Uh, syndrome, Ooh. you know, which we actually saw in our department a couple weeks ago, which was pretty cool. So it's it not, not only is it a zebra because we need to know about them, but they're zebras because they do exist sometimes. And anytime you've told a, a 40-year-old that you're concerned that there's some mass growing in their low abdomen in the area of their uterus and their ovaries, I mean, again, maybe it's not a true zebra, but it's something that you really you really do worry about. Yeah. Um, so these are good things for people coming up to, to think about and then think about how they'd address those situations. So yeah, I... I have a couple other pocketbook ones, but I don't want to give them all away for any potential auditioning students who might be listening. I never even thought of that. What if, like, audition students are listening to this, trying to get They're an inside, the system. an inside view on who to, who, what to talk to us about and everything? That's totally possible. So one of the other things I like to do in addition to the <laughs> Drew's like, I'm done listening to your crazy side stuff. Let's just get back on track. <laughs> if you literally saw it in his face, he like clicked over. He's like, No, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. All right, moving on. Fast forward. Um, It'd be great. I mean, we post on, this is all over Twitter. Uh, well, I don't want to say all over Twitter. It's all over Twitter for the four people to listen to us. I think we're going to be close to the fifth. We've really been growing and expanding recently. Um, so how do you deal with assessing the patient that the student has already seen? Because this is another tricky one. So I like to do two things with this. Sometimes I want them to see me do the assessment, but not too often because, let's be honest, my assessment skills these days are uh, much different than I want a third and fourth year student assessment skills to be. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes, I like to try to sneak into the room while they, just after they come out, um, and they're thinking about the patient, and they're coming up with their differential, and maybe writing down their HPI, and, and coming up with the testing, so that when they're discussing the patient with me, I already have my differential for that patient, and my assessment, and my plan for that patient in mind, too. And I let them do their thing. I don't try to guide them in any specific way, but that way I know what I'm looking for in their presentation, and then I can kind of guide the rest of our discussion that way, too. So, you know, it's one of those you give the student, hey, why don't you go see this patient in room 19? Um, in the meantime, you've seen room 16, 17, 18, and then you pop into 19 just as they're walking out because that's just the way the flow goes or something along those lines. And that seems to work out really well. And actually from, you know, moving forward a little bit, I've talked to several attendings, and that's something that they try to do too, actually, especially uh, with newer residents or if you're a new attending, is they try to see the patient before the resident presents to them so that they have an idea of what they're looking for and can kind of guide the work up further from there. So I, I think that one's, I like that one a lot. Interesting, because I have gravitated towards the opposite only because I felt like for medical students, them being able to see how I approach talking with a patient is just as good of learning. So I'll typically do the whole process, have them present to me, and then we go in together so they can see it. And then afterwards, when it's like an abdominal pain, and they come out telling me that the patient needs allotted and CAT scans and all that kind of stuff. And then we go in and I look at the patient, I'm like, yeah, this patient is... They need four of Zofran. Full of it. Maybe a little Tordal if they're lucky, and discharge papers. Lots of poopy is in the room. Yeah. And, uh, and then I can come out and say, okay, 
did you did you notice how I approached this part of the exam or show them like or talked with them did you see my abdominal exam and then if they say yes great they understood and they say that makes perfect sense they totally different than what I did or they say I didn't really catch on that then the next time they go in and they can see it again and I don't know it's that's interesting though because yours is very much more attending style like I'm making my own judgment and then just kind of one step ahead of you the entire way as opposed to... I've been to... accused of this before by other people, so... Yeah. Not the first time. Intriguing. So, but I do the same thing you do also. There's always the time that um, maybe there's not a bunch of patients to see, but there's one new patient on the board. The student goes in and sees them. I'm getting caught up on charting, and then we do that also. So I like to... I do like to mix it up over the course of the shift where they... Maybe the first patient or two, yeah. um, they see, and then we go in together, and they get to see my exam or the way I interview the patient, the way I distract them. You know, the, the abdominal pain, um, somebody who it seems like they're in severe abdominal pain, but you push on their abdomen while they're in the middle of explaining to you something about their HPI... Uh, kind of thing, and you realize that this is not severe abdominal pain. They're not guarding. They're not, re you know, rebounding. They're they're barely even noticing that you're pushing on them. And then you stop talking to them, and you push on that same point. They're jumping off the bed, so they can see the kind of the distracting techniques and the way you get the information out of the patient that you want. But then I like to follow that up with some of those. I already know what's going on, so we can have that kind of mixed conversation yeah. throughout the day. I I prefer the I already know what's going on approach, but I, I think you're 100 percent right that you got to have some of those where they they see you do your assessment because that's part of the teaching process too, and that's there's a bedside teaching component to that. Yeah. And on the patients that I see before they present to me, I do try to go back in the room with that student, with the student, and do a follow up assessment. And sometimes I'll even actually tell the patient, like, hey, I'm going to come back in the room with the student. We're going to do another assessment on you just so you know you're going to get assessed three times, once by them, once by me, and then once together. Are you okay with that? And a lot of times, especially if they're not super sick um, or even if they are super sick and they know they're sick, the patient is totally accepting of that and they actually appreciate that extra attention because you're just in the room more. And a lot of patients, you can identify the patient that wants the doctor in the room more because it's just more hands-on time versus the patient you want nothing to do with and sure. you run away from. So I don't know. It's kind of a... A, a mix, a mixed bag. Yeah, on yeah. a ship. The I'm trying to think. So stumped. I yeah. You're stumped. I do like. I'm I'm trying to come back to my typical approach to teaching, and getting them involved. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on the differentials. I think that's something that a lot of the. A lot, of, a lot of medical students, even even auditioning ones that are like gunning to get into ER, they don't really think like that yet. And getting them to realize that they have to think of multiple things for every single patient as opposed to just finding that one single diagnosis. It's hard for a student to come into an ED, a well-running ED with strong residents, and they, they look like somebody like you, not as much me, um, and they go, man, they, they just ascent, uh, presented their attending by saying, patient in bed, blah, 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 has uh, lower abdominal pain, we're going to get an ultrasound, there's nothing going on, they're going to go home. And in their mind, they're like, holy cow, they already have, they have their diagnosis, they know what's going on. And what they don't realize is that in the process of us talking to a patient, assessing a patient, and going through, we do the mental exercises of what do I have to rule out, what do I think this is, you know, what is that one or two zebras that possibly fit into this, and then you come to the, the conclusion that this is the workup I need to do and this is the diagnosis that I'm most likely going to come to. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon in the middle of the night now that I have an attending where I present four patients and go, abdominal pain going home, abdominal pain going home, abdominal pain needs a CT scan, might have an appy. And those are the three patients and the attending goes, okay, sounds good, right? And obviously, 
the understanding there is that we're going to slow down and look at the labs, and if we have to reassess and the paint's not under control, they're not tolerant PO, and whatever the case may be, that that might change. But that's my initial diagnosis. But you can't expect a third or a fourth yes. year or even an intern to be doing that same thing because they're not, they're not there yet. They'll get there, but they're not there yet. So we've talked a lot about how the general kind of concepts and everything that we shoot for, but I mean, we have brand new second years that are going to have their first aggressive salivating auditioning medical students. I would almost say rabbit. Yeah, that would be the same thing as aggressive and salivating. Right, <laughs> summed up in one word. Yeah, but it sounds better if you expand it into multiple. I don't know, the rabid medical student? I feel like we could have an entire series on the rabid medical student. The rabid medical student. Uh, anyways, you know, they're going to get it for the first time. So what would be your recommendations to them on how to handle that, that person when they are still just getting comfortable with being a resident themselves? Yeah. So, yeah. To me, number one is when you have a student with you, you have to approach your shift differently, right? That shift is no longer the same shift that you have if the student doesn't show up, right? It's not the, I'm going to work on efficiency and seeing a ton of patients shift. Right. You, you, it turns into a teaching shift in the ED, and you still want to be efficient. You still want to be the, the team player who's moving patients appropriately and picking up patients appropriately, but you just have to accept it. And I don't know what the number is. For me, you know, if I have a student with me, I'm, I'm on an equally busy shift, I'm probably seeing two to three less patients over the course of that shift. Yep. Because that amount of time, which probably equates to about an hour of my time, is going to be spread out over the course of those 10 hours into teaching time as opposed to patient care time. Exactly. And so if normally I would see 20 patients, I'm probably seeing 17 or 18 patients. And, and you have to just accept that that's okay. And It is. It is absolutely okay because that's part of what we're doing. You know, For the rest of our lives, we are going to be in a situation where we're going to be in this role where we have to supervise and teach. Whether you're at a residency program with students and residents, or the reality is, and people don't realize it necessarily until they get out there and they start moonlighting and start working, if the chances of you being a solo practitioner in a standalone ED by yourself is next to none, you're going to at least have PAs or NPs, advanced practice Dude, providers working even, with you. Even teaching nursing, what your right. thought processes are, or explaining things to them. Or teaching patients. Teaching patients. So teaching is always going to happen. And just recognizing that now this is your opportunity to work on teaching skills. It just got really quiet in the it restaurant. Did. Oh my and gosh, I feel like it got I'm yelling really quiet. Um, you always are yelling, though. But anyway. That's because I'm always so excited about what I'm talking about. I'm rabid also, maybe. Salivating and angry. And, um, so I think that's important. It's just recognizing this is going to be a teaching shift. This is not going to be my efficiency shift, my move the meat shift, my whatever shift. Um, and then the other approach is take time one topic, find one topic over the course of the shift that you stop for 10 minutes and you actually talk about. So maybe you have that cool CHF patient and you sit down as opposed to just, okay, what's your differential, what's your HPI, what's your treatment and workup, but actually sit down and talk about CHF and the ER perspective of CHF and then what even is going to happen to the patient once they get admitted to the hospital or, or treatment options and you do a 10 minute teaching time. You know, I keep um, on my drive at the hospital, I have uh, a couple kind of pocket guide type things. One of, the, one of the talks I love to give is ventilator talks. I'm a huge airway guy. But I have a, an RSI card from uh, MCRID as well as a uh, like ventilator crash course thing that I can print off real quick. And if we have 10, 15 minutes to talk about um, intubating or talk about ventilators or whatever, I can actually print that off and we can go through it and we can talk about it. And as long as I don't have the same student the entire month working with me, I can use this three or four times over the course of a month yeah. uh, for teaching and, and spend that 10 minutes of actual teaching, not just talking about patients. Because I think that's really important for your growth and also the, the student's growth too. And just to kind of spin off of that, this is, I would tell a lot of the 
new second years trying to teach medical students for the first time is to start to develop those kind of talks. Have those little pocket guides, have, I, I, I call them pocket talks, but things that you can easily give a presentation on, a, you know, in quotes, presentation, um, and have a discussion and teach them for anywhere from five to 10 minutes depending on the topic. And have that so it's, it's a really good learning point, so you hit all the good stuff. And they're going to take away from that, especially if the, you guys just saw a patient or about to see a patient with that kind of stuff that's going on. And it really helps solidify teaching moments as well as learning moments. And, and if you want to make sure you know something, and this is your opportunity to learn it too, right? Uh, uh, because you never learn better than when you're teaching and presenting something to somebody else. Uh, so if, for you to even spend those 30 seconds formulating your CHF talk, your ventilator talk, or whatever talk in your head is going to pay dividends down the road. And then the other thing I like to do along those same lines is if I'm working with the same student one or two, three, well, two or three days in a row, oftentimes I'm working a string of nights and a student signs up for a string of nights with me also or a string of mornings and, and we have the same patient or same student is, okay, tomorrow, what do you want to talk about? And I put it in the student's lap. Say, give me one emergency medicine topic that you want to spend 10 minutes talking about tomorrow. What is it going to be? And now they have to prepare for it, but also I have to go home and prepare for it too. Even if it's just five-minute prep, looking over a couple of resources, it's a good chance for me to review something for the day to talk about, get ready for tomorrow, because I don't want to look like the idiot that's not prepared to talk. Yeah. Along those same lines, remember that as, as a second-year resident, third-year resident, fourth-year resident, new attending, whatever the case may be, your knowledge base is exponentially larger yes. than the student who is trying to pimp you. It's kind of funny because I do a very similar thing. I end every shift with, if I'm... I love working with a medical student a few days in a row at least because I can send them home with homework. Right. I, my goal for every medical student is I try to get them out an hour early. With the well, otherwise you're just staring over your shoulder watching you document yeah. and you're like, In the last right. hour is typically documentation. You're just trying to get people out and you don't want to stick around too long afterwards doing a bunch of crap. But try to, try to get them out early and with the agreement being that we're going to do, do some homework. And the plan that typically try to do is just an easy podcast. One, because it introduces a lot of them to the phone med world. And two, huge. it's something that I can easily do while I'm driving to and from work, working out, going for a run, whatever it is, in between that. And I, t and I tell them, no matter what I assign to you, I also will do as well. So there's no way I'm going to assign something that's, you know, extreme, time-intensive, long podcast that's an hour long. So I typically gravitate towards, like, the EM Basic series, which is a great podcast um, for medical students, interns, and... I give them a couple options, usually focused at a few of the different patients we saw that day or something that they've talked about saying that they're interested in. And then I let them pick, which one do you want? Do you want to do vaginal bleeding? Do you want to do abdominal pain? Do you want to do stroke, ACS, whatever? And then they pick the one and that's when we listen to. That's awesome. And the, with the goal being that when they show up at the next shift, that first 10, 15 minutes um, or, or sometime in the beginning, we're going to go over what they talked about, any of the high points, key points. It's been pretty fun watching, uh, especially the ones that have never heard of FOMED and had no idea this stuff existed. Because it's, it's something you don't get exposed to in medical school that often. And I think yeah. students are becoming more open to it. They're hearing about it from, yeah. from people. But, it, but it's huge. And that's how at least you and I do so much of our learning and growing at this point. It's, it's so easily becoming the way that majority of information is being passed between emergency physicians that if our students are being exposed to it, then... That baby agrees. FOMED is the way to go. Yep, yep. So that, that's the thing that I like to do too, is, is give them something to learn overnight or whatever it is if you have a couple days in a row. Now, if it becomes 
three quarters of the shifts you work in a month with the same student, that can be a little interesting. It becomes arduous. And, and yes. that, that's probably one of the most challenging things is when you work with a student too much because you stop being excited about being able to teach because you've kind of got stuck in your ways and their ways. Um, and that can be frustrating. I don't actually have great advice on how to work through that other than to approach each day the way you would approach it if it was a different student with yeah. you're going to teach them one thing every day, spend that 10 minutes to, to learn. That's a tough one. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I haven't really had too much like that. I've had a few where it was like five or six shifts in the month, and that fifth and sixth shift are going to be a little it, – it's hard to keep the flow going because they kind of get comfortable and they can kind of slack off a little bit. And a, lot, a lot of times when that happens, I start kind of pushing them to some of the other cases in the department or, hey, you should really go check out the fast track side, see if there's any lacerations get them involved in some other way and also kind of separate myself a little bit to hopefully get them to learn some other aspect. Sure. So I think we've covered a lot. There's a lot more we could cover. There's a lot more we can cover. Maybe there'll be episode two and three on uh, teaching and we can get some other people to come in and, and bury us out of this mess that we've dug. But my summary, and we can do your summary too, my summary is uh, when you're teaching, approach your shift as is a teaching shift. It's not a shift for you, it's a shift for somebody else. Make sure you're spending 10 minutes at least on the shift to do some type of teaching and come up with whatever system you want to do for your general patient teaching and flow. And then the other thing I'll add into there is remember to let the student be a student. So make sure that uh, they get breaks, that they know they can go to the bathroom. Send them, when you need to catch up on your charting and uh, you need 15, 20 minutes to get caught up on life in the middle of your shift, you send them to go get lunch or get dinner or to get you a cup of coffee with your badge, of course, never ask them to pay for you type of thing. So you can kind of control your own flow and your, your momentum by having them just take a break, uh, which is important too, and then it gives you a break. So yeah. that's kind of my tip for the initial managing uh, a student rotating with you on the ED. My quick summary would be make sure that you teach on your teaching shifts. So when you have the opportunity Wait, to do it. what? Because everyone's had those really bad preceptors, attendees, teachers who made life absolutely miserable, terrible, boring, whatever. The minute that you start disregarding teaching a medical student or half-assing it, can I say that? I don't know if I'm allowed to. You're, we can say whatever we want. We're yeah. not sanctioned. <laughs> well, technically, if we never, never mind. Um, anyways, the minute you half-ass it, you are that we'll person. We'll it out. And the, the, the medical student is going to pick up on that real quick, and they are going to automatically look at you as like somebody who's not putting the, their effort into there's, there's two sides of teaching. There's the teaching and the learner. And if the teacher's not there, the learner's not going to be there. Right. So make sure you acknowledge it because you don't want to be the person that you hated being around when you were a learner. And if you're having one of those days, because we all have those days, and you're just, you know, you, you're giving it the good old college try and you're just not able to teach that day, just call an audible, tell the student to go read up on some stuff. We'll try again the next day because you know what? That's okay too. Like some days you're, you're just not having a good day and you got to say, this isn't going to work out for either of us. I apologize. This is me, not you. Yeah. Let's try this again tomorrow, or let's try this again on the next shift. I promise you I'll have my game face on. And if that happens every once in a while, it happens. Sounds good. All right. Well, until Part we talk done. next time, this is uh, Ian Over Easy signing off. Bye. Bye.